Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Christopher Cabral. And um, we've been chatting about uh, his uh, name a little bit. So it's Cabrahel, could be. Uh, could be. But could be, maybe, who knows. Um, uh, back from the old country, per se. So today we're going to talk about uh, low-risk PEs and DVTs, a conversation we've had, I think a couple of years ago, we had a, a similar conversation chatting about some of these lower risk. And as we move forward in emergency medicine, we're looking at ways to you know, decrease the, the burden and healthcare costs on our patients, finding the best and safest plans for evaluation and management. And this is one of those areas that we, we certainly had a significant shift. I mean, it wasn't long ago, actually for a lot of people listening here, um, you probably admit every single pulmonary embolism that comes into your department. Um, and you may, may or may not, you know, old, you know, 15 years ago, you didn't treat all DBTs with anticoagulation. I mean, you, you, you know, the, the superficial versions, the long, the long superficials weren't necessarily treated uh, as long as it wasn't in one of the deep veins per se. Um, so we've had a lot of shift over the last number of years, at least during my, my career in emergency medicine. So, uh, Dr. Cabral, thanks for joining us here on the front line. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So give us a little background on uh, on what we're working on here, uh, the whole idea behind it, and then we'll jump right in. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you, you encapsulated it pretty well. Um, as you've said, over the past 20 years or so, really from the mid-1990s or early 2000s, we started to think about whether we needed to admit all of our low-risk PEs, and you know we've seen that trend in a number of different diseases, right? I remember when I was in medical school, we had just started thinking about the fact that we didn't need to admit all pyelonephritis to the hospital, and and now you know it seems like a crazy idea that we would admit most of those patients. And I think PE has started to see that same sort of shift. We realize now that on the one hand, we can identify which patients are low risk, uh, both low risk for uh, PE complications, recurrent PE, and then low risk for bleeding. And once you can identify those patients, um, you can now select a medication that's easy for the patient to take in terms of the DOACs especially. Uh, so there's really no reason that these patients need to be in the hospital and patients like it better. It's lower cost, uh, gets people out of the ED, uh, frees up beds upstairs. Cause I, you know, I'm sure that you're like us and have a chronic crowding problem. So uh, yeah, it seems like it's going to be the trend moving forward, and and I think we need to know how to do it safely and effectively. And what you're talking about is the fact that, and we've actually had a couple of interviews recently on the EMPOC uh, app uh, and website. So um, the EMPOC, it's about at, 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 as of today about 11 tools on there, and adding a few more um, right now uh, that are coming up very soon. And you're working on tools to help. Uh, assist the emergency physician and others in emergency medicine to, um, to kind of navigate these lower risk uh, PE and DVTs. So give us an idea. Let's start off with uh, DVT. So give us uh, kind of the breakdown of what we're looking at from uh, DVT and the considerations that we, we need to have as an emergency physician. Sure. Um, so yeah, like, like you said, this, this conversation that you and I are having is stemmed out of our development of a point of care tool. So one of the array of tools ASAP's developing to put in the pockets and on the smartphones of our members, make it easier for us to make decisions um, regarding the treatment of low-risk DVT and PE. And so 
Over uh, several months, we convened a group of experts, not only emergency physicians, but actually our colleagues in hematology and internal medicine um, who are experts in PE and DVT uh, to get together and to come up with some guidance in terms of who was eligible for outpatient treatment. With regards to the DVT question, uh, you know, that's actually a, an easier question in some ways than the PE question. Um, DVTs are um, something that we've been treating as outpatients for a little bit longer. I don't know what most people do, but in, in the places where I work, we've been giving people low molecular weight heparin and sending home low risk DVTs even before the DOACs were developed. So I think most people have familiarity with this. And if you look at large national studies, about 40% of DVTs are actually sent home either from the ED or from an observation unit. Uh, the key there is to identify the low risk DVTs. And again, for, for DVT, that's a little bit easier than it is for PE. The, the thing you want to look for is really the extent of the DVT itself. Um, there's plenty of data that show that proximal iliofemoral DVTs are both at a higher risk of embolization and a higher risk of uh, chronic venous complications. So those are really the ones that you want to avoid. You know, something that looks like it's extending up into the pelvis, maybe on your ultrasound, you can't even see the, the proximal end of the DVT, something that looks like it's got the potential to cause uh, phlegmasia, um, or, you know, which is obviously venous or arterial obstruction in, in the vein. Or sometimes occasionally you'll see these DVTs with uh, you know, flappy ends where it just looks like an embolus waiting to happen. You know, these, these are the higher risk ones that you probably don't want to send home. But apart from that, most isolated DVTs can go home as long as you have a patient who is likely to be compliant with treatment, isn't at high risk for bleeding, can manage the idea of follow-up and outpatient treatment. Um, and, and those are considerations that we're going to need to talk about for both DVT and PE, but that's exactly the critical stuff is really making sure that you've got the right patient who can, who can take care of their, uh, their medications and follow up appropriately. We actually rarely admit, I mean, I, I honestly don't recall other than a symptomatic standpoint, you know, significantly symptomatic otherwise, other than just the like pain and swelling admitting a DVT anytime recently, you know, starting <laughs> starting the DOAC and, uh, and getting them on their way with one of their starter packs and, uh, the, you know, first month free or whatever it may be to get them, get them rolling, getting them followed up uh, as necessary. So run us through the, the tool checklist, um, for, um, uh, for the DBT. So what, what, if, if I'm opening up my, here just down the road, the EMPOC app, what am, what am I going to run through in order to, to make that determination for next steps? Sure. Yeah. So both the DVT and the PE tools start uh, from the point that you have diagnosed the DVT or the PE. So this isn't going to be a tool that helps you figure out how to make the diagnosis and how to use different criteria or imaging techniques. We're going to start from the point where you just got your ultrasound back and it shows a DVT. Um, the, the first thing that we're really going to ask is something I hinted at before is, you know, what is the patient's uh, likelihood of being successful as an outpatient treatment. Um, we look at psycho psychosocial criteria, 
For example, you know, if someone's homeless and doesn't have access to follow-up, doesn't have access to primary care, that's not the patient that you want to be sending home with a dose pack and saying, good luck, right? Because these are patients that are going to need follow-up. They need to be able to pay attention to uh, worsening DVT or PE symptoms. They need to be able to pay attention to um, uh, whether their renal function is changing, for example, they need to be paying attention to bleeding. So someone that doesn't have uh, the ability to follow up well, either because of their personal circumstances or capacity, uh, financial resources, even transportation, those are the those are the people that you want to rule out right off the bat. Um, and and I agree with you. I haven't sent. I haven't admitted a DVT for reasons related to the DVT in a good long time, but I have admitted people because I just didn't think they were gonna fly as an outpatient. And, and those are the, that's, that's both safe for our patients and safe for us as physicians, because we don't wanna send somebody home and, and find out later that they, they didn't get their meds or they couldn't take them or they didn't notice a bleeding episode. So the first thing is the psychosocial criteria. And then there's clinical criteria, right? And for DVT, like I said, these are relatively simple. Um, obviously, anybody who's been hemodynamically unstable probably isn't just having a DVT. They're probably having a PE or some other process going on. So you pay attention to the clinical stability of the patient. And then we assess the DVT for high-risk features. So as you click through the point of care tool, the first thing we're going to ask you to do is pay attention to the psychosocial factors. And then there's buttons where you can click on clinical criteria where you say, okay, these are the things to pay attention to for the DVT itself. And you know, for DVT, it's relatively simple. It's is the DVT in an iliofemoral vein or is there concern for phlegmatia? And if no, those aren't really a problem, then the DVT should probably be treatable as an outpatient. The last thing that we pay attention to is, um, well, maybe not the last thing, but the, the thing that we do pay attention to is the risk for bleeding. And so the next button in the point of care tool is kind of describing people who are maybe at higher risk of bleeding complications on anticoagulation. Um, there, obviously someone who's having active bleeding, we don't wanna send home on a new anticoagulant, right? Or someone who has had previous or recent significant bleeding, intracranial bleeding, intraocular, spinal bleeding, et cetera, those are patients who I'd be really cautious about sending home because we may want to monitor them. Same thing with recent surgery, recent trauma, recent strokes, all the things that you as a clinician would worry about starting somebody on an anticoagulant. We, we list out additional things like thrombocytopenia, cirrhosis. You know, you've probably admitted people for anticoagulation just because they've had three or four falls in the last week and you didn't want to send them home on a blood thinner knowing that they might trip at home, right? So these are pretty practical, I think, common sense recommendations that the point of care tool outlines um, in terms of making sure that when we do send people home, they're either not gonna have worsening complications from their DVT or they're not gonna have bleeding problems. So the DVT is relatively common, low hanging fruit for us in emergency medicine. You know, most of us, many are diagnosing these on our own with bedside point of care ultrasound. Um, you know, it's one of the first things that if, if you haven't learned uh, POCUS, you know, the, the DVT is a good place to start. Um, but now with the pulmonary embolism. So, you know, we, we, you know, we've had a lot of tools and things out there. I mean, there's a lot of tools for the diagnosis, as you mentioned, at this point, we're assuming there's out there, we already have the diagnosis, but, you know, as, as technology improves with our CT scanners, um, with the CTAs and of that nature, we're, we're picking up smaller and smaller uh, pulmonary emboli. And we're finding that many of those are not clinically significant 
And question now moving, you know, moving forward is whether even some of those need any, even anticoagulation at all, because it seems like it's part of the normal function of the lung is, is to filter out occasional clots, um, as long as they're small um, and weight down the pipe, not causing damage. But, you know, then we have everything in between, you know, you, you got everything from the little speck at the very tips of the uh, vasculature within the lungs, all the way to the saddle embolus that we all learn about in, in residency and school. So kind of walk us through the process and tools for determining what we do, uh, because this is one of the largest areas of shift in the practice of medicine over the last 10 to 15 years, is this whole idea that we're going to send, we're going to send a, a PE home. Um, and, and we still have, you know, a lot of variation out there. I mean, I know a lot of people probably listening have had conversations, you know, either pro or con with their, their hospitalists or others about staying or going or with patients and their families about staying and going um, because with a, with a pulmonary embolism. Um, but we're getting to the point that we are sending more and more home. I'd say now I'm probably sending uh, probably about, you know, a third to half of my pulmonary emboli, uh, especially the segmental aspects home. So kind of walk us through this tool with PEs. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. This is the biggest shift. Um, we did a study a couple of years back. It was a protocol that we developed for the outpatient treatment of PE. And we found that when we implemented the protocol at our hospital, we were able to send home about 25% of our PEs straight from the ED or with a very brief ED observation stay. And when we looked at what we would consider to be just the low risk population, so skimming off the top, those people who have right heart strain or hemodynamic instability, that number was even greater. And now we're talking about closer to 40 to 50%, like you mentioned. So I think this is definitely a trend. And, you know, as, as we see in our hospital, every available bed that opens up in our ED or in the hospital is a good thing for us. And it's better for patients because they both like it better and uh, the cost is less. So there's been a couple studies that came out and show that, you know, the outpatient or even with a brief ED observation stay, uh, the outpatient treatment of PE is associated with the decrease in cost about a third at least. Um, so these are going to be good things, both for our patients, for us, for our you know, our chairs and hospital administrators. So I, I, I think this trend is something that we need to get, get uh, comfortable with, um, but also make sure that we can, we can do safely. So um, as with the DVT tool, the PE tool starts from the presumption that you've made the PE diagnosis, but um, it is a little bit different because there are obviously different ways to make a PE diagnosis, right? And we, we acknowledge that the vast majority of cases uh, are diagnosed after a PECT or a CT pulmonary angiogram. Um, we get that you can use a VQ scan. You know, some places you might even use an MRA if you're feeling really fancy. Um, or you can just say, look, I've got a patient with shortness of breath and a known DVT, and that's a PE, good enough for me. But for the purposes of our tool, we want to be able to see the PE, um, and that, that's helpful with risk stratification. So we really focused on the vast majority, probably 95% of all PEs that are diagnosed with a CTPTPA. Um, that's not to say that the other ones aren't real or maybe even potentially candidates for outpatient treatment, but it's just it's just easier when you can get a sense of the right heart and the extent of the PE on the CT. So most of what we talk about is is related to patients that have had a CTPA. Um, I mean, even talking about the the aspect of the VQ, I mean, if you're getting a VQ scan, you're getting it because at this day and age, you're getting it because there's some other significant issue that's already present 
Uh, and I think that's probably going to kind of work us off the the path and trail of your tool anyway. Uh, yeah, to that's, say that that's totally a right. Significant issue, whether it's the allergy, whether it's renal, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, you know, pregnancy. Um, you know, those are those are some of those things that are going to make people higher risk anyway. Uh, so, you know, I, I completely agree. And the MRA, that's you, you've got a new you've got a new level of uh, access to MRI if, if, if you're diagnosing all your PEs with MRA. But I, I digress. Go on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we start off the tool in basically the same way we did for the DVT. Right. If first thing we want to make sure the patient's even a candidate for outpatient treatment. And we talked about this stuff, but it's the so psychosocial stuff. If you think your patient's not gonna follow up, you don't have to even think about it, uh, discharging them. The, the, the key thing here is patient safety. Uh, that protects the patient, that protects us. And, and we don't wanna be sending home people who aren't gonna be successful with outpatient treatment. So um, then you get into the clinical criteria uh, to risk stratify the PE itself. And there things get a little more complicated than they were in the DVT world. Um, not surprisingly, we start off with hemodynamic instability. That's we, we put that in there thinking that it was pretty obvious for people, but um, if we didn't mention it, you know, it would make us seem silly. So uh, obviously you're not gonna send home somebody who's hemodynamically unstable with a PE, but we do mention it. There are a couple different criteria that you can use in order to risk stratify your PE. People may have heard of the PESI or the S-PESI. Uh, we published our own criteria at MGH a couple years back. Uh, probably the most uh, directly analogous criteria for us as emergency physicians is called the Hestia criteria. And, and that's a, a set of criteria that look at the patient's hemodynamic instability, their pain, their likelihood of decompensation. And without going into great detail about what all the components are, the point of care tool suggests that you use that as your first step to identify patients that are low risk and likely to be successful uh, with outpatient uh, treatment. We, we then look at the markers that we know are associated with increased risk associated with PE. And these are all things that people are pretty familiar with, I think, in emergency medicine. So uh, we're looking at right heart strain, and that can be diagnosed either on the CT or on echocardiogram um, or on EKG or with biomarkers, right? So CT that shows an RV to LV ratio of greater than one, same thing with an echo. If the RV looks dilated or hypokinetic, those should get your attention. Um, I will say that in some work that we've done, we found that the CT tends to be very sensitive, um, but not as specific as an echo. So a CT that shows RV strain may or may not uh, actually bear out on an echocardiogram. So you know, just because you see CT evidence of right heart strain doesn't necessarily mean that the patient isn't low risk. Uh, probably means that you want to take a look with your bedside ultrasound or ask your cardiology friends to do a, a formal echo. Um, obviously, patients with elevated troponins, um, they're also going to be in a higher risk category. And we generally don't, don't recommend sending people home uh, if they have one of these high risk features. There are other things that you can see on echo uh, and sometimes on CT that would worry me and I don't think you should send them home. So for example, if you, if you put your probe on the heart and you see a clot in the RV, that's a patient I'd admit to the hospital. Uh, so we, we outline that in the point of care tool as well. And then because uh, certain percentage, you know, maybe a third to a half of patients with 
PE will still have residual DVT, uh, we want you to take a look and see if there's that big iliofemoral DVT waiting to, to come up into the, into the pulmonary vasculature before you send somebody home. Because if you've got someone with a relatively large clot who's otherwise hemodynamically stable, you might say to yourself, yeah, I can send that patient home. But once you see that big DVT waiting to come up and you think to yourself, hey, if that thing goes, they're not going to survive, uh, that's probably a patient that I wouldn't send home either. So the PE tool is a little more detailed than the DVT tool in terms of risk stratifying patients in terms of their PE and whether we think they're safe to go home. We, we did design it to be a little conservative because as, as you mentioned, you know, we get that this is uh, advanced or pushing the envelope for some people. Um, and so we designed this to be maybe even safer than than it needs to be. Um, and because we want people to feel comfortable with this and, and we get that this is gonna be something that needs to advance slowly over time. But we think we've identified the main, the main things that should allow you to, to find the patients who are safe to go home. That's the big thing is, is as we move forward is does the patient, are they going to benefit the, the benefit versus harm of being admitted to the hospital? And you know, many of these things that we do, we've admitted people and there is no actual benefit to that patient by staying in the hospital versus being home. Now, of course, there, you know, the, the, the risk associated with it of, I think, you know, the, the life raft of saying, well, that bad outcome happens, at least it happens in the hospital versus being home and having a bad outcome and concern about risk uh, exposure at that point. But, uh, but as we move forward with our healthcare system, we've got to think about, you know, the bed capacity hospital capacity, what's best for the patients, what's safest for the patients, the cost effectiveness of the treatments that we're initiating. And, you know, I think these tools are ways to say, you know, it's not perfect, but nothing we're ever going to do is going to be perfect and get all the answers exactly right. But can we get as close as we can? Um, and, you know, the, the, the little fraction that remains is going to be a small fraction that um, that honestly is, is more of a coin flip than anything else, rather than something we could have, you know, thought our way through or caught in, in most of these situations. So kind of a, any wrap up take home thoughts regarding uh, these tools and, and approaching to lower risk DVT and PEs. Yeah, so um, first of all, I'll say I, I couldn't agree more about your, your sentiment about who really benefits from being in the hospital. Um, we did a study a few years ago and we, we tried to identify what proportion of PE patients were what I affectionately call the sports center patient which means that they came into the hospital, they watched Sports Center, and they went home, and absolutely nothing else happened to them. And it turns out that that was about two-thirds of patients. Um, we said, look, even if you need a little bit of oxygen, being in the hospital might have been worth it for you. And again, two-thirds of people didn't even need that. So I think those are the patients that we're trying to identify here. The, the take-home message, though, I, I think it's worth talking about um, what is going to make our members as, as, as ASEP members, what's going to make the emergency physicians feel comfortable with this process and patients feel comfortable with it. And, and it's not just the things that we've already talked about. It's not just, is the PE safe? Is the patient going to bleed? Um, the biggest, most important thing really, I think is having follow-up. We're not going to send patients home if we think they're going to get lost in the wind and no one's going to see them. And so what we did at our hospital and what other successful programs have done is create a defined system for that follow-up. We, I have someone that I can email and I know they're going to see that patient within a week in their clinic. Um, that wasn't difficult to set up. It's just reaching out to one of your 
medicine, hematology, vascular medicine colleagues and saying, hey, you know, can you see these people when I send them home? Um, making sure that patients have the ability to follow up is critical. Making sure that they have the ability to get their medicine is absolutely critical as well. And earlier you mentioned, you know, free drug cards and those things are great. Uh, more recently at our hospital, we initiated a med to bed program where not just for DVT and PE, but for antibiotics and other things, we're able to provide uh, the dose pack to the patient while they're in the ED. And that, that took a fair amount of effort coordinating with our pharmacy and some billing questions needed to be answered. But I will tell you that I did this just yesterday and knowing that you are handing a patient the medicine that they need with a very clear path about how to take it and how to do the dose change that's required for, for both rivaroxaban and apixaban, um, that really increases physician comfort that you're gonna send this patient home into a safe circumstance. Um, so those are, those are my, my two main take home points is, you know, yes, we need to risk stratify patients and their PE. Yes, we need to risk stratify patients and their bleeding, but I'm a practical guy. And I think that the, the most important thing here is knowing that you've got someone going home who knows when and where to follow up and knowing that you're, you're secure in the fact that they can get their medicines whether it's through you know, a reliable pharmacy or even a med to bed program, those are really the things that are gonna make this outpatient treatment successful for people. And that's actually what our facility has done as well, that med to bed aspect for the DOAX, you know, getting the DOAX, the DOAC dose packs um, available, you know, sending that prescription and card down to pharmacy and having them provide that before the patient leaves. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's the ideal situation, of course, you know, understanding that meeting folks out there don't have a um, outpatient pharmacy license for your facility. Um, so that can be a challenge. Um, I noticed during COVID, uh, a lot of our 24 hour pharmacies have restrained their hours. And so having access 24 seven is challenging. So many times, if, if our pharmacy isn't open during those hours, I'll go ahead and give them the dose, uh, the initial dose in the emergency department to get them uh, the prescription to follow up that next day. Um, to, to get that going. Uh, and, and that's a lot of things you've got to work with with your hospital on, on what the best approach and plan is going to be um, in order to, to knock this out. Uh, in fact, our hospital has started keeping the, um, just, just because of that meds to bed uh, aspect, we've actually started keeping the dose packs in our uh, Omnicell in the, hot, in the emergency department. So it doesn't even have to go all the way to pharmacy. You know, we just write the prescription and then they go get it out of the Omnicell and provide that to that uh, to that patient before they leave and so yeah that's what we do as well and and i i agree that you know first of all given the first dose in the ed i think is absolutely critical it, it just buys the patient time to figure out you know when whether their pharmacy is open you know you're going to have at least 12 hours no matter what drug you do to to get them to a point where they can go to a pharmacy during the light of day and and that's critical um but if you're not sure about the success of this or you feel like you know, uh, hey, it would be helpful if, if I could have the patient stick around and talk to a case manager or something. Uh, observation stays in the ED or in an ED observation unit are totally reasonable, um, you know, and, and it still saves a bed day, lower cost to the patient than inpatient hospitalization or inpatient observation. So 
you know, I'm not saying that every patient that goes home needs to go straight home from the ED. Uh, a brief ED ob stay can help reassure the patients and you that everything's going to work out. And that's okay too. Um, but if you have a med to beds program or something where you can put the drug in the patient's hand and you have reliable follow-up with a colleague, uh, we, we found that it's really very easy to send patients home and it's been highly successful. How can folks get more information? Uh, contact, of course, the EMPOC app. Uh, we'll have these you know, in, in the very near future um, available um, as a free benefit to membership with ASEP, but also available if you're not. Um, but uh, how can folks get in touch with you if they had more questions, want to dig in a little deeper? Yeah, I'm always happy to have people reach out to me. I'm at Mass General Hospital in Boston, so I'm happy to give people my email. It's C-K-A-B-R-H-E-L at mgh.harvard.edu. And anyone that has a question about this, I'm happy to help out. And obviously the, the point of care app uh, should be released relatively soon. And that's gonna be the key, the key uh, uh, stopping off point for all the information about this. And as for me, you can contact me at rstantonatasep.org, rstantonatasep.org, at, at Everyday Med on Twitter. Also have our page on the Facebook. And, um, you know, want you to make sure that everybody out there is subscribed to the podcast and uh, getting every week and uh, continuing to hopefully make our jobs better and easier in emergency medicine, or at least give us the tools we need uh, every day that we're in the trenches uh, taking care of our patients. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton. And this has been some ASAP Frontline.